Holiday travel's about to take off, and airports from Denver to Grand Junction, built for a different time, are trying to keep up. A flying public that was cooped up in the pandemic now is desperate to spread its wings. People have prioritized travel. We are seeing numbers that are extraordinary. You sense this as soon as you hit the road to DIA, a crawling necklace of cars from the highway to the terminal. They're looking at adding a, quote, managed lane in each direction. Oh, that sounds like tolls. Yes. A holiday travel special today with hacks from airport insiders. I'll share my favorite shortcut. Plus how fuels made from forests or algae could take some of the guilt out of flying. And the question so many of you are asking, is Denver's airport going to be under construction forever? Get those seats and tray tables up. Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Swarms of Coloradans are getting ready to fly during the holiday season. But so many airports seem like construction zones at this point, especially in Denver, where huge chunks of the main terminal are walled off. It can get disorienting, especially when security lines get so long it's hard to find the end. ID or driver's license, I can help you out on this side. It'd be nice if they could speed things up. I mean, today looks really good, but I was here three weeks ago and it was a disaster. Took forever to get through. It was annoying at first because I couldn't find TSA, but now it's fine. We got some food and normally it takes like 45 minutes to get food at airports and this was pretty quick. And then got a beer, which was great. <laughs> and then our, our flight's starting to board now, so it's been great so far. I got off the plane and I saw a baggage carousel one through nine and none of them said Delta. So I walked back and forth because I thought maybe I missed it at one or I missed it at nine. Finally asked somebody and they said, oh, there's a whole other side over on the west side. Shannon McGee, Nicole Infantes, Vicki Taylor, and Rick Benuelos were each traveling through Denver International Airport earlier this month. Today, we'll answer some of your big questions about DIA, AKA DEN. Like, when can we expect to see shorter lines and less construction? You'll also meet some of the thousands of people who work at the airport and hear their travel hacks. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, all the employees are here for to help. So if you need any help, ask, we'll be glad to help. Brendan Jackson, a supervisor at the Boulder Beer Tap House in the terminal. He fields passenger questions, all while serving up grub. Also this hour, your questions about the climate footprint of air travel. First, though, we have to get to the airport. CPR's Nathaniel Miner is going to explain why the road in feels so congested and how the train line could become a more appealing option. Nate, is Peña Boulevard getting more crowded? Yes, absolutely. The airport served only 30 million people when it and Peña opened in the mid-90s. Now it's well on its way to 100 million passengers. 
And on top of that, all the development happening in Green Valley Ranch and Gateway nearby, there's a lot more people on that road. Right. We have to think that the airport is the airport. It's also a neighborhood, which means there's more congestion. For sure, yes. What are the options for making it quicker to drive to the airport? Well, the main one is expanding Pena Boulevard, which is what the head of the airport has told me he wants to do. They're looking at adding a, quote, managed lane in each direction. Oh, that sounds like tolls. Yes, but buses and shuttles would use it for free. It's all quite controversial, though, because in general, the state and the city are trying to move away from highway expansions as they try to reduce climate emissions. Not to mention that expanding highways works for a little while and then things get congested again. They fill up again. The idea was that the A-line commuter rail would reduce the need to drive to the airport and provide another transit option. We heard from one person who works at DIA named Hermias Argawi, who commutes on the train. Totally from the airport, my home is about one hour. Three years ago or four years ago, there was no train. So at that time, we were using buses, you know, only buses, so it makes the transportation very easier. But listeners tell us they wish it ran more frequently, or maybe they're nervous to park their cars at RTD lots for extended periods. There have been break-ins, of course. Are there discussions, Nate, about how to improve the experience to get to the airport by train? A month ago, the answer was no. The airport kept saying that federal regulations kept it from spending its money on the A-line. And I wrote a long piece interrogating that claim for our sister publication, Denverite. But now it looks like there's a little bit of movement. RTD and the airport are actually talking about what it would take to make the A-line better. We don't really know any specifics yet, though. Oh, I was going to ask you. Thanks, Nate. You're welcome. Nathaniel Miner covers transportation for us. Once you get to the airport, you'll see a constellation of employees serving food, checking bags, guiding wheelchairs, wanding passengers. In all, airport managers say 40,000 people work there. And these insiders have tips for the rest of us who may only come through a few times a year. You'll hear their voices throughout today's show. First, a hack from Courtney Law, who's in administration. She has a favorite restaurant in Sea Concourse and a tip for how to get a piping hot meal for your flight. So I'm pretty new to working at the airport, but as a semi-frequent traveler and a fan of Route Down, I put their number in my phone, the airport one, uh, and I call while I'm in security, place my order, and as soon as I get on the train, I know that it's probably already in progress, and it's typically waiting for me when I arrive, just in under 15 minutes usually. Her typical order is the lamb sliders, by the way. Okay, when we come back, we'll slide your questions into a conversation with airport CEO, Phil Washington. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Closing a school is emotional. It's gut-wrenching. What happens to all those closed buildings? To the best of our ability, when we repurpose these schools, we want to be providing the community with something that they feel is important to them. I'm Jenny Brandine. Colorado Wonders finds out what's happened to those school buildings. Read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Phil Washington, when you fly out of DIA, what's your own experience like getting through airport security and to your gate? My experience is just like any other passenger, actually. This is a construction site here at the terminal. I go through the same things that any other traveler goes through. I wait in the security lines, and sometimes they're long and sometimes they're not. So I ask passengers to bear with us. Everyone, this is Phil Washington. He's the CEO of the airport. And we have a lot of questions for him about the passenger experience. But first, you know, even when the lines move fast, if they're long, if they're snaking past baggage claim, they can feel daunting. Do we know, have lines gotten longer? Have wait times increased? Let me say this. During times of the day, the lines are long. We are in conversations with TSA, who we don't control, and we have been talking to them about our resource allocation of transportation security agents for this airport. Ironically, we have fewer agents in 2023 than we had in 2019. And compare passenger traffic between those two years. In other words, fewer Mm -hmm. agents and presumably more travelers? Fewer agents and a lot more travel. 2019, we were at 69.1. This year, we're going to end at 78 million. So the growth has been incredible. Completely incomprehensible to me why there would be fewer TSA agents and more passengers, except perhaps the labor shortages that, you know, all fields face. What's behind it? Well, we're trying to find out. We had a great meeting with the TSA administrator. He came out here to Denver. Any good answers? I think so. I mean, we have looked at the inputs. Technology is an input. If technology advances that could facilitate fewer agents. You know, the training of agents could be a factor. The layout of the airport. We have a different airport here. I mean, you know, you go to some airports, you might have seven terminals with seven separate security areas. That's the layout in places like uh, Chicago and LAX. Uh, We're different. We primarily have one terminal with right now two large security areas. Are you lobbying for more TSA agents? Absolutely. Why couldn't Denver's airport look more like those other models? The architecture and the design of this airport is unique. In order to build seven different you know, security areas would be a daunting thing. But I will say there will be great improvement at the completion of our West security checkpoint that will open up permanently in February of next year with new equipment, 17 new checkpoints, and a throughput that will go from something like 150 people per lane per hour to something like 250. That's going to be a noticeable difference, you think? Absolutely. Not in time for holiday travel. Unless you're talking about spring break. Maybe Valentine's Day. (laughs) Right, right. Well, millions more people coming through Denver's airport than, frankly, it was originally built to support. No wonder you're having, you know, issues with lines at certain parts of the day. Then you add the construction, which reduces how much space there is for people to move around. You know, will the construction experience 
feeling like this is a construction zone, does that get better anytime soon? It does. It's getting better already. The worst is behind us. And now I believe passengers will see a vast improvement when we open up that new checkpoint. The construction is scheduled to go through, I think, 2028. Or sooner. Oh, well, tell me about or sooner. Phase one was done ahead of schedule. Um, Why doesn't anything about this feel ahead of schedule? (laughs) Just as a passenger, you know, phase one being ahead of schedule, I'm sure internally that feels really good. But, you know, this all feels so lingering. Construction always feels that way. When you look at Union Station, people felt like, a long time. We actually finished that project almost a year ahead of schedule. You used to be head of RTD? Yes. Yeah. Construction is always difficult, but at the end of the day, you have a better product. We got a question through Colorado Wonders from a listener named Matt Giraffa. He lives in Golden. And he asks, why is the airport so crowded? Like, is it more people just connecting through Denver, leaving from Denver, coming to Denver? Well, I think the first thing is people have prioritized travel. I mean, we are seeing numbers that are extraordinary. When we have an airport that was designed for 50 million annual passengers, and the end of this year we'll be at 78 and we'll be at 100 million coming through here. So we are retrofitting this airport to fit probably 30 million more people than it was designed for. And who are those people? We have a mix. We have originating and destination, and we have connecting. Uh, And it's about 60-40, I would say. In other words, 40% connecting. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. The growth is probably in both areas. Uh, So there's people coming and going. There's people connecting. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. Denver is very, very popular. The, The Rocky Mountain region And so we see an increase there. Business travel has not come back completely, but we see that inching forward. And look, Denver is geographically placed really in the middle of the country. Uh, When you start thinking about connecting, uh, we're three hours from the East Coast, give or take. We're two hours from the West Coast. We are, by airspace standards, in the middle of the country, which makes it very, very attractive to airlines to fly and connect here in Denver International Airport. And there's a lot of room to grow, which is not true of your LAXs, right? That's very, very true. Or your Kennedys or maybe your O'Hare's. That's right. We have more land than any other airport in the world except for one in the Middle East. Let's talk for a moment about the underground train between the terminal and concourses. You've asked for proposals for an alternative, a backup. Yes. And, you know, we've seen instances of why that backup is necessary. What are the most promising alternatives you've seen? Well, first of all, I should say that the train is up and operating about 99% of the time. But when it goes down, it's complete chaos. We get that. We asked for those ideas. We received some extraordinary, innovative ideas. Like? Like pedestrian bridges from Concourse A to B, Concourse B to C. These are massive spans. Yeah, they'd, be, they'd have to be long and high, right? Because a plane would have to go under them. A plane would have to go under those long and high with the possibilities for concessions on those bridges. 
And so we've asked for those. We're doing more detailed analysis, but these are costly. What about shuttles of some kind? Did those come in? Uh, The shuttles, in terms of capacity, I don't think they would help us. You know, we have thousands of people, actually millions of people, going from this terminal out to the concourses. So they don't quite have the capacity. Okay. So is it only bridges? Is that basically you've just got 20 versions of different bridges? uh, And we have some tunnel things, but I'm talking about the ones that I think are viable. You don't Uh, think tunnels are? Too expensive. The tunneling right now, if you look at even rail projects and you look at the cost of tunneling and utility relocation and that sort of thing, it makes it very, very expensive. For those who aren't able-bodied, those long bridges, presumably they'd have, you know, moving walkways or Absolutely. ways to assist people who Absolutely. aren't able. Okay. Absolutely. And, and, and that, you know, these long spans, you know, the trains would still be running as well. So people could opt to make that walk, just like they do in other airports like uh, Atlanta, for one. We're speaking weeks before the height of holiday travel. For some Coloradans, that's going to remind them of the debacle last Christmas time with Southwest. 17,000 flights canceled then, many of them here in Denver. It ruined a lot of people's holidays. Obviously, Phil Washington, you're not responsible for Southwest's operations. But what can the airport do to prevent something like that from happening with any airline you work with? Yeah, yeah it was an incredible disruption. Incredible disruption. And it lasted, you know, long tail. It lasted, and it was uh, incredibly disruptive. What we did and what I asked for immediately was an after-action review with not just Southwest, but all of the airlines. What did you learn? We learned a lot. Communication was a, a big one. The lack of, in some instances, of, you know, how we could help, uh, and the airlines never got that word, if you will, the freeze and thaw cycles uh, here in Colorado, which are very, very unique. Things freeze and then they thaw because we have a lot of sunshine as well. What did that have to do with the disruptions? And why wouldn't you have known that? Well, you know, we had pipes that froze with compressed natural gas, CNG. We had fuel uh, facilities that were frozen over. There were breaks that baggage handlers had to take because uh, it was so cold every five or ten minutes. You know, you couldn't work. So we learned a lot. We documented all those things. Uh, in and are those fixed review. for this? I believe they are. Okay. Yes. yes. And the airlines uh, sat down with us and we went over all those things. So I, you know, you, you can never say never, but we've got some things in place that will make it much smoother if we go through a cold cycle like that again. You recently started offering a service where for 59 bucks a person, there's help to bring your bags in from the car, find the security lanes, and take you to the gate. It also gets you into an expedited security line. It's called Sky Squad, mm-hmm. a private service expanding to DIA. Uh, you've said this is intended to help people with disabilities, for example. But... It made me wonder, you know, I think about TSA Pre, I think about Clear. Is the airport becoming like another toll lane where the more you pay, the better your experience is? Is is the airport a classist experience these days? The Lexus lane, you know? Yeah. No, I I wouldn't say it is. I I don't want to see us become that way. I want for the experience to be 
good experience to be offered to every traveler, whether they, you know, get the elite treatment or not. But there are uh, some passengers that, that need extra attention, and we want to provide that. But we don't want to be an elitist, you know, gold-plated airport just for a few people. There's also Den Reserve, which allows you to reserve a place in the security line. That's free. You've been involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts here and in other roles, like when you were running the Los Angeles metro system. You know, Phil, there are many documented incidents of racism on airplanes or in U.S. airports, from the way pat-downs are done at security or how passengers are treated by airlines. What are a couple specific things you and your staff can do to make Denver's airport a more welcoming place for BIPOC people? You know, and that could be passengers, employees. Well, I mean, we have an ecosystem out here. Uh, and this is we, a city in yes, some ways. Yes, it's a city. You know, yeah. I mean, we have, what, 40,000 badged employees out here. And so we communicate often. We talk to them all the time, and we deliver the same message. I deliver the same message, that we want people treated respectfully, And how do you build that? What are ways you're making sure that happens? I think you have to constantly state what your priorities are around equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. Signage has to be tied to that. What do you mean signage? uh, Signage that says uh, we treat everybody with respect at this airport and that you can call this number if you, you know, experience someone uh, not respecting folks. And And we have folks that do that. Um, so there's a number I can call? Sure, sure. We have a uh, what we call a CSA app that, uh, you know, employees can report uh, various things, whether it's repairs, whether it's maintenance, whatever it is. So we do our best to make sure that people feel like this is an accommodating place, and we'll continue to do that. When you've gotten feedback on a line like that or an mm-hmm. app like that, can you give me an example of something that's changed or improved as a result? Well, we have our sunflower program with people with disabilities can wear a sunflower uh, and not bring attention to themselves, but our volunteers can see that. It's not something that is a sunflower that's pasted on your forehead or something, uh-huh. but it's a small sort of indication that a person might need help with a disability or accessibility or something like that. Oh, where do you get a sunflower if someone Um, needs that? Any of the information booths that's in our concourses. Oh, okay. And it's just a little message, a little subtle message that says, hey, I may need extra support here. That's right. Okay. The number to call is 720-730-I-FLY. We'll put that on our website. Thank you for calling Denver International Airport. More to come with CEO Phil Washington, what he has to say about a New York Times investigation into near collisions at U.S. airports, and what DIA will look like in the future. First, another hack, this one from Diana Calandrelli, who works at a credit union at the airport. We asked her about the best restrooms at Den. They just did the new concourse for like B1, and also on concourse C, they did the higher gates, so like C40, C50, and the bathrooms are actually a little bit wider, so you have more space, and the mirror is like, there's more lighting too. So I know the girlies like to do their makeup at the airport. Those will be the bathrooms to go to. (laughs) Have the little vanity mirrors so you can do your hair there, (laughs) and makeup, I would say. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If giving back to your community is an integral part of how you do business, make twice the impact by participating in Colorado Public Radio's Spirit of Sharing program. Your support for CPR can raise awareness for another nonprofit and its mission and may also be considered a 501c3 nonprofit contribution. Connect your business with your community through a Spirit of Sharing sponsorship. Start now at CPR.org. A special show today, all about air travel ahead of the holidays. Let's get back to my conversation with Denver Airport CEO Phil Washington at the office tower next to the terminal. The New York Times has been doing a series on near collisions at airports around the country. Some of the incidents they cited were in Denver. And this is an aspect of airline travel that most of us have not been worried about, but maybe are now. The newspaper says a big reason planes are nearly colliding is human error, Mm -hmm. in part because of a shortage of air traffic controllers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The paper also cites a lack of adequate warning systems at some airports. Do you know how many close calls are happening at DIA? Uh, We have a low number. I don't have the exact number for you, but one of the things... Low compared to things or low overall? Low low compared to the country, to the rest of the country in terms of airports. Uh, One of the things that we just did, and the Secretary of Transportation was out here to cut the ribbon on it, um, was the ribbon cutting on a new taxiway. Now, this taxiway was the largest FAA safety program or project in the country right here at Denver International Airport. What's so special about it? Well, what's special about it is it actually allows pilots to use a quicker route to the runway and also when they land to the terminal versus going all the way around the airfield that could actually cause runway incursions. And so by using this large taxiway that we built, it allows them to cut across, if you will, and not have to do this whole runaround as other planes are landing. Presumably, the less time you're kind of rolling out there vulnerable, you reduce the odds of a collision. You, yes, absolutely. Okay. You, you, you reduce the odds of that, and it allows aircraft to get off the airfield much, much quicker. I, there are times I've landed at Denver and it feels like I'm taxiing to Colorado Springs. So I imagine that it also makes it just a shorter trip to the absolutely concourse. That's right. Okay, shorter trip to the concourse and a shorter trip to the runway if you're taking off. What about that notion of there just simply being shortages among controllers? Yeah. Can a taxiway make up for that? We have a shortage here, but our hope is that. There'll be training classes starting up. I mean, I think the pandemic slowed some of that training down. But when a controller comes here, it might take them up to six to 12 months to be certified for this airport. Oh, you can be an experienced controller, but you need the experience at a particular airport. Correct. And that could take some time. And during that period, there is a supervisor that has to be in close proximity to that trainee, if you will. Uh, And so that takes that supervisor away from 
their full-time duties as well. We want to see, and I think FAA is working that um, in terms of the training for controllers. Training uh, more of them, expediting it? Training more of them and expediting them. And then when they get to, you know, like Denver International Airport, we will do what we can as partners to make sure their certification at this airport is accelerated as well. Phil Washington, you recently unveiled a vision for the future of the airport. In about 20 years, you plan to add new concourses, so beyond A, B, and C, and that these new ones would be walkable from the security area, the terminal. How else do you expect the experience for travelers to be different in 2045 compared to now? Well, 2045, Operation 2045, since I'm an Army guy, um, we have projections that say we will be at 120-plus million going through this airport. Now, what And where are we mean? today? Remind me where we are today. The end of this year, we will hit 78. Oh, Lord. Okay. In, in, in it's an like airport, almost a doubling. That's right. In an airport that was designed for 50. And what that means is we need to start thinking about additional concourses. We have concourse A, B, and C, and we have the ability to build 11 additional gates on C, on C West. And once we do that, we are tapped out with the existing concourses. Hmm. So our thought is we will begin now to lay the foundation for additional ones that are walkable and do not require train intervention that are off the Great Hall is what we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. Given the walkability that you want to build into the new concourses, does it make you think that the original design that was so heavily reliant on the underground, bussy, trainy hybrid thing, like that that was ill-advised? No, I I would not criticize, uh, you know, the original designers or the original builders. Uh, Why not? Because I think uh, it's my job to improve as best we can. I can't go back and, you know, trash the design. So, and, and, and I think that way about all infrastructure. I mean, we can look at infrastructure around the country, whether it's rail systems, whether it's dams, whether it's ports, uh, and say it should not be designed that way, or we can improve it and fix it. You look at LaGuardia. I mean, it's a brand new airport now that was not too long ago called uh, a third world airport and now it's sparkling but you can't get there unless you go through a construction period and this is what we're doing now this will be one of the the greatest airports in the world when we're done in the lobby of this building the offices at the airport i was just leafing through magazines Airport magazine. Airport Improvement magazine. That's its own magazine, Phil. Yeah. Anyway, do, are, should I expect to fly on an electric plane by 2045? I think so. If you don't, you can come back and get me. Okay. Uh, there were articles but, all about the electrification <laughs> of air travel in these magazines. I think it's coming. Our duty, our job, I think, is to allow for innovation. So to answer your question, yes. We will see electric planes, I believe. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Phil Washington, CEO of Denver's airport. I asked Washington that last question about electric planes, in part because we heard from several Coloradans curious about the climate impact of the airport and of air travel in general.
Well, CPR's climate and environment editor, Joe Wirtz, is here to answer your questions. Howdy, Joe. Hey, Ryan. When we talk about climate impacts, we've got to separate the actual flights from the operations on the ground at the airport, right? Yeah, exactly. So the vast majority of the climate impact comes from the flying part. Airplanes are about 3% of greenhouse gas emissions here in the U.S., and about 3.5% of the heating effect in the atmosphere can be attributed to air travel. Why do they give off so much greenhouse gas, and is there anything being done to change that? Well, I recently met up with Brad Brown from United Airlines, He helps manage fuel operations at DIA, and we watched a crew refuel a 787 Dreamliner. That's the plane there. And you were saying earlier, it's you like that plane? Yes, it has a lower cabin pressure, and humidity controls and lighting controls take a lot of the stress out of flying. And it's very fuel efficient. What makes it fuel efficient? The engines, and the design of the wings and the structure of the aircraft. So this is the fueling process, and uh, Joel up there is fueling the aircraft now. 162,700 pounds. Wow. Where's the plane headed? Tokyo. Tokyo. Watch your step. Yeah, and that plane is made out of lighter, stronger materials, too. It's a kind of a lovely experience to fly. Yeah, that's what everybody there was saying. And I want to point out a few things going on here that tell us a lot about climate change and the airline industry. This Boeing Dreamliner that's operated by United is really new, built to slip through the air as easily as possible. And it's got these new model engines with turbines that are super fuel efficient. Well, as far as jet engines go. Yeah, right. There's some context here. That's right. And you heard what Brad Brown said there. 162,700 pounds of fuel to get that plane from Denver to Tokyo. That's about 24,000 gallons of jet fuel. Oh, a lot of fuel for one flight, Joe. And all of that jet fuel pumped into that specific plane comes from fossil fuels, oil. And burning jet fuel, like burning any other kind of fuel, releases CO2 and other greenhouse gases like methane, nitrous oxide. I talked to Rohina Sengupta. She's the director of decarbonization at United Airlines. She says 98% of United's carbon emissions come from burning jet fuel. United and other airlines do have a really strong incentive to use less, right? Jet fuel is expensive. For United, it's the second largest item on their budget every year. So they've done everything they can to minimize the amount of jet fuel they're using. They've optimized their routes. And many United planes are doing things like maybe only using one engine when they're taxiing around the airport. All of those measures, they can only save so much jet fuel. That which we cannot reduce, we have to replace with sustainable alternative. We need to make sure it comes from the alternative to the fossil petroleum resources that make our jet fuel today. Meaning jet fuel doesn't have to come from fossil fuel. But almost all of it does right now. Only 0.1% of aviation fuel around the world comes from non-fossil fuel sources. Sengupta says most of it comes from recycled oil. Fats, oils, and greases, or fogs, like used cooking oil, industrial-grade tallow, really heavy fat, high-lipid materials that have been used to produce renewable fuels for years. United is also investing in companies that use plants that could be forest waste or crops like corn to extract ethanol to use for jet fuel. And they're also getting into something called power to liquid. You capture carbon out of the air, You combine that carbon with hydrogen from water, hydro plus carbon, boom, you got fuel. Oh, 
But there'd have to be a lot of this stuff to make a dent in the air industry's carbon footprint. Too big a task for a single airline to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the U.S. government has a huge interest in this as well. They're spending a ton of money on sustainable aviation fuels research. And a lot of that research is actually being done here in Colorado at NREL, which is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. I talked to Zia Abdullah. He's the Biomass Laboratory Programs Manager. And the feds gave him a bunch of infrastructure money to upgrade a lab that he helps run. That is correct. So the fuels that we are looking at can be waste material, food industry waste material, all sorts of biomass, which can be herbaceous feedstocks. It can be forestry residue. It can be algaes. Algaes. Algaes in the air. Yeah, pretty crazy. And Abdul actually told me something that I'd never really thought about. He says there's really one really tricky thing about sustainable aviation fuel, and that's that it has to work on a bunch of really old planes. Uh, Hawk is not everything's a sparkling new Dreamliner. The jet fuel that they make has to work perfectly in all kinds of engines. Mm-hmm. It has to work with regulations and rules. These are very strict for airlines. They have to create a low-carbon version of the exact same type of fuel they're already using. Well, when can people fly without so much guilt? Well, none of these alternative fuels are available at DIA yet. So maybe in 20, 25 years, they are predicting a big enough portion of jet fuel be from alternative sources by about that time. So I think 20, 25 years, uh, you know, you could feel a little bit better. Okay. (laughs) A little delayed. We mentioned at the beginning that what happens on the ground at the actual airport is obviously much less of a carbon footprint than the planes. But what is DIA? What is the airport doing about climate change itself? They've got a lot of solar panels on the site and they're installing you know, more efficient lighting, doing more recycling, on-site composting, installing EV chargers, you know, generally updating, improving the building design so it uses less energy when they heat and cool the place. And another thing, they used to have a bunch of working oil and gas wells on the airport property itself, but the last of those were plugged in August. Joe, as much as you might have been tempted, glad you didn't hop on that flight to Tokyo. Thanks for staying with us. I really wanted to, Ryan. Good to see you. Joe Wirtz leads our climate team. Our high-flying holiday travel special continues shortly with the picture from some of Colorado's smaller airports. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Depends on who's counting and how, but there are at least 54 14ers in Colorado. Then there are the 13ers, more than 600 of them, and the list goes on and on. All in all, there are over 5,000 mountains across the state. Sleek, oblique, antique, unique. It's Colorado Postcards Peak Week. Listen all week on CPR News and at CPR.org slash postcards. As we crisscrossed DIA looking for advice and stories from people who work there, CPR's Matt Bloom camped out at the Shoeshine Stand. Hello, I'm Tara Soto, one of the managers here at Executive Shine. And we are currently on the west side of the B terminal, right in the center core um, at the Shoeshine Stand. Get that nice brush. <laughs> I am 
a native to Colorado, born and raised, first generation here on both sides. And I started working out at the airport for the Shoe Shine Stand, Executive Shine, about 12 years ago. You know, my husband and I, we both work here and we bought our first house working for the Shoe Shine Stand. And I absolutely love my job. We see literally people from every single walk of life all over the world and I love hearing their stories. Flight attendants talk about some of their encounters. I mean, I've literally had people in my chair that have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses and we just cry together. I've had people in my chair that say they're suicidal and they need a little bit of love in their life and I, we hug them out and just the hope and I've had people like pray to me that they're gonna make their life better, things like that. Like, it's just, you never know who shows up. You never know who's in your chair. And so we just always kind of use shining shoes as a way to connect to other people. I'm ready for you right over here on the corner. Thank you for stopping. I seen it when we flew in and I told my wife that I was like, I kind of want to do that, but we were in a rush. So now that we have time and we're leaving, I had to get it done. <laughs> a little post-mountain trip, shine. So now that he's explored Colorado with his honeymoon, he's getting his boots done before he goes back home. <laughs> That's the best part of my job is listening to your story and a lot of customers who just come from all over the world and get to share their journey and their stories and their love with us and we just kind of have like a 12-15 minute connection I guess and where else did you go? Uh, Blackhawk. Black, did you do any gambling up there? Oh, I lost everything I brought to do that. <laughs> it's still fun. It's a beautiful town. Yeah. Like Lake Lily. Oh, beautiful out there. Well, since I started working here, I mean, obviously the growth. They say it's the third busiest airport in the world. It feels like the third busiest airport in the world. Like nothing is the same. The layout is the same, but as far as restaurants go, there are very few restaurants that are still here that were here when I first started. A lot of the concessions that were here when I first started are new. But yeah, they have shuttle buses for the employees. You know, they're working on getting um, specific entryways for the employees to go through security-wise so that it doesn't take so much time, you know, in between coming to and from work. Um, specific parking lots that we can park in, so it's, it's really good. I think that helps at least because it gets chaotic traveling on a daily basis so just imagine the employee coming into work having to go through the same thing it can be an, ex an exhausting experience so I'm, I'm really happy that the airport is recognizing that and fixing it and coming up with something for us as well. Leaders talk about getting to, I think, what, like 100 million passengers a year. I mean, how does that make you feel? I'm really excited for it. I'm nervous and excited all at the same time because it's so many people. I mean, I remember just them talking about reaching 60 million three or four years ago and thinking, oh my God, that's a crazy amount of people. So, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it because it's like the, the heart of the world right here in Denver, but I'm nervous and excited all at the same time. <laughs> it's doable though, for sure. Yeah, how do they look for you? They're not too shiny, that's okay right there? They're perfect. <laughs> okay, let's take an after.
when I started working here, I used to work for a construction company, and I started working there when I was 18 years old. You didn't have very much human interaction in the, when you're working in an office on a computer all day, every single day, just focusing on that. Um, and I think that was the missing component for me, is the human interaction, the connection piece to it all. Doing a shoe shine is like a reflection of what you're seeing within. And so I started to learn that more and more with what I had to offer to people and then what the stories that I would hear as well. So it became very fulfilling. It became very clear to me what I wanted. This is something I wanted more of. The top tip we got from people who work at the airport, by the way, get here early. Of course, some Coloradans will start and end their holidays at airports other than DIA. Here's Western Slope producer Tom Hess on what to expect. Jennifer Stoll doesn't have an opinion on the TSA lines in Denver. She never sees them flying out of Grand Junction, something she estimates she does twice a month, often for work in other cities. I could fly out of DIA all the time and take, you know, one flight and be there, but I'd have to be at the airport way earlier. I'd have to drive from a suburb likely. I'd have to pay more for parking and all of that. There's a trade-off, of course. Grand Junction Regional Airport only flies to a handful of cities, so if you make Grand Junction your hub, you should be prepared to change planes or limit where you go. That is significantly outweighed for me by the convenience factor. The fact that I can leave my house you know, less than an hour before flight time and stroll through security and still get a cup of coffee. Across the state in Colorado Springs, Director of Aviation Greg Phillips describes the growth in travelers as astronomical. People in Colorado Springs and in the southern Colorado communities all the way down to Raton, New Mexico and east to western Kansas are coming and flying out of Colorado Springs. He thinks more of them are stopping in Colorado Springs rather than driving to Denver to fly. We call ourselves Colorado's small airport. We want to focus on the ease of access, the ability to get in and out of here quickly, and people do love that. But just like Grand Junction, Colorado Springs has struggled to add destinations and routes. That may be in part because of a nationwide shortage in pilots. I've had conversations with airlines and one of our major carriers said, you know, I've got 40 aircraft sitting on the ground that I can't fly because I don't have pilots for it, don't have crews. And so, you know, that is an issue. And we've not made it easier for people to get into the flying business. And that's a problem. Mandatory retirement ages, extensive flight hour requirements, and expensive education have been listed as reasons there's simply not enough pilots. Other airport and airline positions have been hard to fill, too. A result is that in Grand Junction, airport director Angela Padalecki says it's hard to absorb disruptions in everyday air travel, like when weather in Denver forced flights carrying hundreds of travelers to land on the western slope instead. This summer, there were several days where within the span of an hour, we had 12 mainline aircraft. And so now you have an aircraft with 200 people on it who need to deplane at our airport while we're, we're operating our flights here. We average 10 flights a day. So to have 12 diversions on large aircraft, 
that's impactful for us. In some cases, the airlines that diverted didn't even have a service counter or staff at the Grand Junction Airport. Because of the pilot shortage and because pilots are really being fully utilized, they don't have much extra capacity in their schedules and what they're either legally allowed to work or what they're contracted to work. What we see is then pilots will time out. When the airline staff times out, Grand Junction staff has to pick up the slack. Pat Alecki says she was at the airport till 3 in the morning on more than one occasion to help stranded passengers. While they try to staff up, Colorado's smaller airports are also updating or expanding their facilities. Just like in Denver, they weren't built to handle the volume of people flying now. Colorado Springs, Montrose, Gunnison, they're all doing terminal work. Some of them are getting their first updates in decades. Grand Junction is building a runway that will replace the one built in the 1950s, and those projects are expensive. The runway in Grand Junction will hit $150 million alone. A lot of this work is funded by federal grants, but Phillips says the to-do list is long. There is money, but uh, one could argue that there is nowhere near enough grant money available. Competition for the money is fierce. Padalecki is thankful to be getting a new runway, but she says Grand Junction still needs to replace an air traffic control tower that predates wheeled luggage. We're competing against hundreds of other airports for a, a tiny amount of money. I mean, if they were to allocate it out, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to solve a tens of millions of dollars problem. About 230,000 people got on planes in Grand Junction all of last year. That's less than half the number of passengers DIA is likely to see just during the week of Thanksgiving. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Well, before we end our journey together, I promise to share my Denver airport tip. The doors are closing. Okay, my Denver airport hack is that when you get off the train at the terminal... I hate how everyone has to file and crush onto those escalators to get up into the terminal and to baggage claim. So my hack is use the stairs if you can. Hold on, please. We are approaching the terminal. If you're able to use the stairs, virtually no one is in them. And this you, is the terminal. All you, passengers, please exit and follow signs to ground transportation and baggage claim. How dare please she interrupt me? And you just avoid the masses of people. So we're going to go beyond the escalators. And there's that curve. Everybody's turning. And then they're all getting into two narrow lines. And we're going to go past all of these folks. And this is probably the loneliest staircase at Denver Airport. There's literally one other person walking these stairs with me. Meanwhile, the escalators are a crush of humanity. If you're flying at the holidays or picking up someone you love, I wish you luck. And let me know if you use any of our hacks. With producer Rachel Estabrook, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for flying with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.